Read Smart, the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction podcast. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation. Hello, and thank you for joining us for this episode of Read Smart. I'm your host, Rezia Iqbal, and I've been talking to each of the shortlisted authors for the Winner of Winners Award. For those of you who haven't been listening recently, the Winner of Winners Award will go to the best of the previous 24 recipients of the prize. The shortlist has been chosen by an illustrious panel of judges chaired by Jason Cowley and featuring Shahida Bari, Sarah Churchwell and Francis Wilson. Now, in this episode, I'll be talking to Wade Davis, anthropologist and writer about the book that won the 2012 Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction. It's called Into the Silence, The Great War, Mallory and the Conquest of Everest. Wade joins us now. Thanks so much for speaking with us today, Wade. Oh, it's a delight to be with you. Um, so let's um, let's go back to the beginning, maybe not of the the book, but of you, really, and your background in anthropology. I mean, how, where did that interest come from? And and once you've dealt with that, let's talk about how that fed into your the impulse to write this particular book, because you've written so many books. Well, it's actually a kind of funny, almost embarrassing question. You know, I think people imagine careers unfolding in a linear way when, in fact, they are often catalyzed by moments of kind of serendipity. I, I literally was uh, spent my first year at university um, mostly making trouble. And when it came time to uh, determine a major, I hadn't given the, the slightest thought. And uh, I happened to have come through the Peabody Museum of Ethnology at Harvard for the first time on the very deadline of that decision. And I ran into a mate in the street and I said, Stuart, what are you going to major in tomorrow? And he said to me, anthropology. And I said, what's that? And he said, well, you read about Indians. And I like Forrest Gump, I said, that'll do. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> and I signed on for anthropology. And I, you know, I think that the, the cool thing was that I I fell into a couple of important mentors, a great plant explorer, Richard Evans Schultes, probably the greatest Amazonian explorer of the 20th century, and the great humanist and um, activist, in a way, David Mayberry Lewis, who had just founded, or was about to found, um, cultural survival. So I had this sense of academics being an opportunity, in a way, for activism, be it environmental or cultural um, advocacy on, on, on behalf and with indigenous people. And I never thought of an academic path as being anything more than a, a lens through which to see the world, and if if only for a while. And perhaps that's why I've I've jumped from whatever um, subject sort of struck me, or um, you know, and, and ignited my imagination, or just just I fell upon from you know voodoo and zombies uh, to the Amazon to to of course the slopes of Everest. I mean the. The, the genesis of this book, um, Into the Silence, was, again, utterly serendipitous. I had traveled in 1996. We basically made something up called the Sino-American Ecological Survey just to get um, permits to go to places scientists hadn't gone since the Chinese Revolution. And we were able to travel um, about 6,000 kilometers overland through southeastern Tibet, eventually to Lhasa and on to Kathmandu. And we passed Everest in the fateful spring where the debacle happened that Krakauer wrote about so powerfully in his book Into the Into Thin Air. And leading our expedition was Dan Taylor, an extraordinary character, 
whose father had been a very good friend of Howard Somerville, and Daniel had been kind of nursed on Everest, and the the, the tragic loss of life for no particular purpose um, really struck him, and this wasn't the Everest of his imaginings. And the following season, quite by chance, Dan and I returned to the east face of Everest, the legendary Gama Valley, um, to attempt to photograph both snow leopards and perhaps even clouded leopards if we could get down the gorge of the Arun. And we got trapped in snow, and we almost thought we were going to be in there for the entire winter. And one day when we were standing um, in the fields at Petanringbo, uh, where Mallory camped, uh, you're standing on ground higher than anything in Europe, and yet you're looking up at two vertical miles of ice rising on the Kanshung face to the south coal of Everest from the east. And of course, this was the last of the faces to be climbed. It was the one that Mallory took one look at and felt it would never be done. And Daniel, in his inimitable way, began to speak to me about Englishmen dressed in tweeds who read Shakespeare to each other in the snow at 24,000 feet. I was immediately captivated because I, I was always intrigued uh, as an Anglophile um, by the character of these, char these charismatic and sometimes crazy Englishmen who flung themselves against the world. And I was also, I think, deeply um, touched by what had happened in my own family uh, during both those wars. You know, my, my grandfather was a surgeon at the front all through the First World War. Uh, he never came back the same. My own father, um, something happened to him in London at St. Mary's and in the Home Guard during Hitler's war. He never spoke about it, but I think in some way, he too was broken by the experience. I always felt that these men had given up their lives so that I would never have to. And so there was this sort of deep loyalty to those generations, but particularly in my grandfather's generation. And one thing or another just led to this, this idea I had that, that you know, I was never interested in whether George Mallory uh, and Sandy Irvin got to the top before they met their end. I mean, of course, I was interested, but what really con consumed my, 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 my interest or my passion, in a way, was what was the character of these men that carried them aloft, and that was that was um, that was the essence of what. I, and the book, the genesis of the actual book, was simply a letter that I wrote to uh, Peter Matson, my agent. And curiously, you know, that letter ended with the last line um, that, in fact, would end up in the last line in the silence. You know, a book that would consume twelve years to write and research. And that line was, you know, for this entire generation, life mattered less than the moments of being alive. And that was really the kind of the, 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 the impetus for the book. And, and, and that quote is from a, a, a letter that one of, the, one of the, the team of the three expeditions that you, that you look at in the book. I, I'm really interested in, in the fact that you dedicated the book to your grandfather and that you were interested in the character of these men, because the, the entire premise of the book is is to actually look at um, the attempts to, to to climb Everest in an era that was directly tied to British imperialism. I, I I wonder how you how you can just explain that to to people who have not read the book. Yeah, I mean, it's you know, if you think about it, Everest became almost like a Rorschach test of the of the. Um, plight or the fate, or one could say the decline of the British Empire. You know, the effort began uh, before the Great War when an empire of explorers had famously lost the race for the North and South Poles to 
to others. And so Everest looming over the Raj uh, within the clear domain of the British, uh, it became kind of a third pole. And, and, and climbing, it became not just a, a mission of, uh, you know, mountaineering, but rather a, almost a, 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 um, a gesture of imperial redemption. And then in the wake of the war, it became, in a sense, a symbol of regeneration for an entire nation bled white by the conflict. And then curiously, in the wake of the death of Mallory in 1924, and for a number of very interesting reasons, the, the uh, ability to go to Tibet was shut down by the 13th Dalai Lama. Uh, and it wasn't until 1933 that the British returned. And 33 was quite an extraordinary expedition. And three men got very high, um, it, equally um, Colonel Norton's height record of 24, but the expeditions that came later in the 30s, I think it was 35, was 36, 38, whatever, were just unmitigated failures, and they became, in a sense, um, symbols of Britain's impotence on the eve of Hitler's war. And then when finally in 1953, when the mountain was climbed by Sir John Hunt's team, it was powerfully symbolic that those who reached the top were not from Oxbridge, as Arthur Hinks had always anticipated in the early 20s, but rather a humble beekeeper from the far reaches of empire and a Sherpa, Tenzing Norgay. And critically, when Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay refused to say who got to the top first, that simple sim single gesture kind of inverted the whole idea of what it meant to be a colony, what it meant to be colonized. And this, of course, was only six years after India's independence. And, of course, Nehru seized upon this as a great symbol, which is why he embraced mountaineering with such zeal. So, you know, the, 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 um, the climbs really reflected the fate of the empire. And by the same token, um, you know, when I looked at the expeditions, um, 26 men went on those three expeditions with some overlap, of course, in 21, 22, and 24. Um, but all the attention um, had gone on Mallory, and the other characters were kind of treated as sort of support players in some kind of, you know, Greek drama of, of George Mallory. And the truth is, all 26 of the men who went were stunningly interesting characters. And so one of the things I wanted to do was sort of, you know, give give each of them their due because they were so indescribably interesting. And so one one thing I set out to do, um, and of course, the premise of the book, in a way, never spoken about, I suppose, but never forgotten, was that the, the, the Great War really was consequential in the in both the, um, um, the the lives of these men, but also in um, the spirit with which they went to the mountain. All but six of them had seen action in the war, either as combatants or as medics. Not just seen action. I mean, they had been wounded several times. You know, uh, John Noel spent the whole year, uh, the whole war, shell-shocked in asylum. I mean, they, they you know, um, three or four of them were surgeons at the casualty clearing stations. You know, I mean, Howard Somerville walked out the morning of the Somme, having been told that he might expect a thousand casualties in a week, and he was one of two surgeons looking out at five acres of bleeding, dying boys, and he had to decide who would live and who would die. But to to make that premise, I I couldn't tell people that because I didn't know. I had to show it, and showing it involved really finding out what these men um, had experienced. So one of the the great challenges and, uh, was to find out where each of the 20 men, as you mentioned, who had 
fought. And by the way, the others didn't escape the war except maybe Beetham as a school teacher. Sandy was too young. Longstaff was too old. You know, um, um, you, you know, um, uh, you know, you know, and and, and so on. Um, but I, I I looked to find where every single one of those men had been every single day of the four years and four months of the war, and I was able to do that through the military records. And then the other extraordinary thing is that. Um, they may not have described their specific experiences on any one day, but because of the battle records, you could find out what had happened to them on any day because of where they were. And so, you know, one of the things we forget about that war was how how small the zone of British operations was. I mean, the, the British front at no point was longer than 125 miles. For much of the war, it was less than 100 miles. And behind that frontage, the British would build 6,000 miles of railroad, 6,000 miles of, of trench. And so every single spot in that bloodied field had been covered by regimental journals, by poetry, by, by letters home. So you could really find out what had happened with a degree of specificity that I wouldn't have imagined possible before the research began. It is so interesting that you're, you're thinking as an anthropologist... Oh, it, made you look at the, the the men, the men and what made them think and what motivated them and what made them want to do this. It, it, you know, in some in some cases it's extraordinary that any of them survived. You know, they were they were they were climbing, trying to climb Everest in plus fours and wearing tweed and I mean, Well you know they, they they didn't you know that's a little bit of a myth. You know, they, they did they didn't have modern equipment, but they had the best equipment available and it was pretty good except for the boots and except for um, you know, crampons. Those were the big weakness, and the ropes were weak. Um, but you know, I, you know, anthropology tries to look beneath the surface of things, and um, you know, every other um, some very splendid books that had covered these expeditions. It was interesting how, um, even though written often by very fine British um, scholars, um, they, they treated the war as kind of just a backstory. You know, a, a one line saying that Norton had fought the Somme or something, and, and not really connecting the two, or, which I felt that was so, um, you, you know, absolutely um, essential. And, and um, uh, you know, also in terms of the book is also very much how these expeditions were conceived within the context of the Raj. I mean, these weren't just climbing expeditions. I mean, permission to go to Tibet in 1921 was all part of a complex arms deal worked out between Charles Bell and the 13th Dalai Lama, that would be the key, as he saw it, to a free and independent Tibet. And by the same token, the refusal to allow the British to return to Tibet, as they planned to do immediately in the wake of Mallory's death in 1924, was all because of the offense caused by Noel's film, in which um, the Tibetan authorities were deeply offended that he had sort of, you know, invited, without the permission of the authorities, several monks to come to London to kind of decorate the theater set as the film would play. And that was deeply offensive to the Tibetans. Um, and that's what caused the, you know, it was called the affair of the dancing llamas. And, and so the, these things were always enmeshed. And, 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 and again, I wanted to give voice to the, the, the anonymous porters and Sherpas. So for example, I spent weeks living in monasteries um, around Everest because he, the, the Lama who met, for example, the expeditions at Rongbuk in 21-22 was Zatul Rinpoche. His 
his heir spiritually was was Rinpoche, who was still alive at the Tupten uh, 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 Monastery in Nepal. So by by being in that monastery, you were effectively in wrong book in 1921. And I also, for example, got hold of the uh, spiritual autobiography that Satchel Rinpoche had written, his Namtar, which had never been translated. So I had that translated by monks in Kathmandu to see what they were actually saying li- live time as the British arrived, you know. So there was there was a, a tremendous amount of research into the Tibetan side of the story, and not just in terms of the religious basis, but the, the metaphysics of landscape. The fact that, you know, this idea that Everest is sacred is a completely um, false kind of um, bit of out pine hippie ethnography. The truth is that that um, it's not the mountain that's sacred, but the environs of the mountain, because this is one of the hidden valleys of Kembelun, one of the, the sanctuaries, you know, carved in the space at the dawn of time by Guru Rinpoche. So, it, you know, it was a metaphysical um, uh, landscape, uh, uh, also with portals to the divine. So they were, they were walking the whole time, unbeknownst to them, in a landscape of mystic space. You are really sensitive to the people of, of Tibet and, and indeed their religion and the contrast in, in language as well between those people of Tibet who, you know, and you alluded to the relationship between Mallory and Tenzing Norgay as well, but, you know, the language of... Yeah, sorry, Hillary and... Sorry, uh, forgive me, Hillary and Tenzing Norgay, but, you know, the, the, also the language in terms of um, the climbers, the, the Western climbers saying that they wanted to assault the mountain and attack the mountain in a way is so, so different to the relationship to the environment that the Tibetans had. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I, I mean, I think that the, these, these, it's not an accident that we have that language in, in the mountaineering tradition because the, certainly the British mountaineering tradition, of course, it was nursed in the Lake District and, and, and um, in France and Switzerland, the Alps, but in in India, um, in the Raj, it was very much, um, you know, the 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 early climbers were escorted to the mountains by soldiers who had often um, only recently pacified those mountains, and so there was this fantastic symbiosis between the two, whereby climbing was very much um, uh, um, an activity of the elite. I mean, at Cambridge. Everybody was a climber. You know, Virginia Woolf's father, who founded the Alpine Club, um, everybody climbed. It was a gentleman's sport. And and the climbers, in a way, elevated the soldiers, particularly someone like General Bruce, into the kind of the rarefied world of what climbing would become. And I think, it, you know, in the end, in looking back at these these all of these men, and, and it is a book that's dominated by men simply because that was the story, but we mustn't forget the women um, in that war. You know, one thing as a writer you, you try to, I certainly try to do is, is I, I always go back to this notion of show, don't tell. I have no, you know, I never have any interest in telling or someone what they should think or, or, or presenting a, masquerading a polemic with, 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 with prose or something like that. You know, you try to find that thing that makes you go, wow. I, I always sort of go, wow point. Like, if you want to, you know, how was the war for the women? Well, you could give any um, amount of data, I guess, you want. But if you just remember that, you know, Nancy Manners said, you know, by the end of 1916, every boy I'd ever danced with was dead. Or Vera Britton saying that, you know, um, there was no one left to dance with. You know, the extraordinary Vera Britton, whose book 
Testament to Youth is without doubt the best memoir of that war. Um, you know, she lost her brother, her fiance, her two best friends. I mean, what a fantastic woman, you know. But but again, re returning to the climbers, you know, at, at the very um, end, I tried to think of why was I so captivated by these 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 characters, and I think, you know, a couple of things that they they were they were men of another age, and these were men of discretion and decorum. They weren't prepared to litter the world with themselves. They had no sense of, of, of pop culture. Um, they weren't men who were prepared to yield their feelings to analysis. Um, and yet at the same time, they were men so confident in their masculinity that they could speak about love between men without shame. Um, they could collect butterflies in the dawn for the British Museum. They could paint watercolors before lunch and then over lunch discuss Keats and Shelley and and Wordsworth and Shakespeare, and still be prepared to assault the German line by dusk, or indeed the flanks of Everest by morning. And and they're kind of a kind of character, a kind of man, I think, that I don't think we'll ever see again, for better or for worse, I, I suppose, in this opinion for some. But I think very much, in a way, for the better. And and the most extraordinary thing to re recall for anyone um, of us, you know, born of that of that of that generation. You know, these men were our grandfathers. It is really interesting. I mean, the way in which you have just described the men, I, I want you to focus a little bit both on Mallory and Charles Bruce, that, you know, so different in so many ways, but incredibly compelling characters. And that list of things that you say these men were doing routinely and not being um, embarrassed or ashamed of, you know, the relationship between uh, between men and so on, you know, Mallory was also, you know, he had real difficulty with the Tibetans. I mean, he called it a hateful country inhabited by hateful people. And you can argue that it was just a, he was a person of his time. But but it is an interesting dimension that, that I suppose is worth at least getting you to reflect on. Well, that's a great comment because, you know, oddly enough, um, I, you know, fluctuated in my feelings about Mallory you know, and... Uh, um, I have to say that by the end of the day, I I admired him as an athlete, but for me, he was perhaps the least interesting of the 20 men who went to Everest, um, of the 26 men. Um, uh, you know, he he was very mercurial. He he was he was uncertain of who he was. He wanted to be a writer, but he never was able to really make the grade. He 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 really became part of the Bloomsbury set simply because. You know, everybody fell in love with him. Well, the question is, you just had to go to the British Library, and the only issue was what man in Britain hadn't tried to bet George Mallory, you know? I mean, he had, the only actual affair he had was with, um, uh, you know, Lytton's brother. Um, but, you know, Ed, you know, he, he was, you know, Duncan Grant was enamored of him. I mean, um, Eddie Castle's Churchill's secretary was enamored of him. I mean, he, he had this kind of charismatic physicality that just drew men to him a little bit like Rupert Brooke, um, and 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 again, you know, these were men operating in a different era. You you know, I mean, where terms like homosexuality had no meaning really. You know, the, you know, it was, you know, it, these were men who were raised in homes by nannies who only connection to women had been with their sisters who went off to these monastic schools which were run by men who were products of those schools, you know, uh, as brutal as they could be. Places like Cambridge and Oxford were little 
apart from monastic. Um, I mean, for example, you could not be a head of a college at Cambridge in Mallory's time if you were married. I mean, the word effeminate in that time meant a man who spent too much time with his wife. And so, you know, these 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 men were, were, were products of that era. Mallory said those terrible things about Tibetan, but he also wrote to Ruth that he famously hated Canadians. And I'm, I don't know how you hate a Canadian, but he hated Canadians. And I never really figured that one out except a kind of colonial conceit. But I think Mallory was sort of adopting these kind of um, uh, 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 affectations of, of the, the British kind of contempt for, for other peoples that kind of like a cloak. Because when you read like Robert Graves writing about Mallory as a schoolmaster, a very different person comes across a very sympathetic person. I think he was just a complex man. He was 38 years old when he died. He was still a young man. And, and um, you know, General Bruce, uh, I mean, my gosh, I mean, he, he, they called him the, the, the Mad Mountain Maniac. You know, he was an absolute product of the Welsh coal districts. He, he was so strong, he could lift two men up just by extending his arms on either side of his body for exercise. He would put his adjutant on his back and run up and down the Khyber Pass. He famously could rip a pack of cards in half at a, you know, um, you know. He he was thrown out of Harrow for, um, for having been thrashed more times in a shorter period of time than any student in the history of the school. And his final transgression was throwing a pot of geraniums off a high building and it landed on some preachers. I mean, I mean, he was just such a character, and um, and yet he was absolutely kind of that fat, fat, you know, British, but also incredibly courageous. You know, at, at Gallipoli, um, machine gun fire literally severed his legs, and he was sent back to Britain to convalesce, and he was told whatever he was to do, he should never walk upstairs. Uh, and yet no one told him anything about not walking up Everest. <laughs> I mean, that really is, that kind of encompasses, just epitomizes the character part of, of of what you're writing about. I wonder, you also once said that um, that Everest created the legend of Mallory and that Everest will always be Mallory. It, it, that is such an interesting um, idea, given that we know that the, the, the conquest then did come, you know, 1953 and so on with, with Hillary. And, and, and I just wonder what you think now about... Um, about what what people think about when they think about Everest. I mean, you will always think about it through the the lens that, of the of the research that you have so painstakingly done. But but in the in the kind of popular imagination, do you think that that is still true? Well, I think that um, you know the reason Mallory was heralded is after all he was um, uh, the only one to go on all three expeditions twenty one, twenty two, twenty four. There was something so poignant in the way that he disappeared. I mean, he was sighted by Odell, um, you know, with young Sandy Irvin at his side, um, you know, going strong for the top in the Northeast Ridge when literally the mist um, rolled in and enveloped their memory and myth. And because, you know, um, for so many years, um, his body had not been found. And to this day, Sandy's body has not been found, you know, and there was so much speculation. And it's very interesting when, when, when Mallory's um, uh, death um, was confirmed and accepted by the expedition, Colonel Norton immediately abandoned the mountain. And, 
he used language that had been used in the war. You know, it was a hard loss, but we had grown used to loss. And 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 it was actually Beetham, I think, who wrote this beautiful passage that you know, as as a lefty valley, he's looking up at this sort of spectral mountain, and he says, you know, somewhere up there, um, there are two men yesterday in fine form, and now they are gone. And there's a critical line without ever knowing the experience of decay. You know, who could ask for a better death? And that's a direct reference, at least, you know, subconsciously to the experience quite different on the Western Front, where, you know, just think about this. You know, we all wear poppies on Remembrance Day on November 11th, but few of us recall that the reasons poppies bloomed in Flanders' fields is that the sheer amount of cordite and blood had transformed the chemistry of the soil. That's why poppies bloom in Flanders' fields. So um, th- there was that, um, and, and then when, when, the, when uh, but Norton absolutely said, you know, no communication, no speculation, let it be. But of course, that wasn't going to happen. And back in London, long before the expedition had returned, uh, people were already speculating. And it's interesting, the language was all kind of, um, you know, Mallory must have made it. You know, how could he not have made it? And there was a sort of feeling that kind of willed victory into uncertainty. And I think that's what sort of sowed the the Mallory myth. And he was so handsome, good looking. He had such a beautiful wife and young kids. Um, I think that's what sort of played into all of that. And and the fascinating thing about Hillary is I was lucky enough to interview Sir Edmund Hillary um, and I'm, I'm a good friend of his son, who's a wonderful fellow. And, and you know, he was always so incredibly deferential to Maori. You know, if you remember, um, on top of the mountain, having himself refused to have his photograph taken, not out of principle, just because he couldn't be bothered by Tenzing. Instead, he's looking down that northeast ridge, wondering, wondering, wondering what came of Maori, right? And when I asked him the direct question, he, he, you know, whether he ever felt that his achievement had, had been sort of overshadowed by the myth of Mallory, he just said to me very discreetly, I think some part of mountaineering is getting down alive. And that's all he said about it, you know. So, so what a beautiful man Sir Edmund Hillary was. I mean, geez, he was such a great person. Um, and, 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 and his triumph will never be forgotten, coming as it did on Coronation Day. I think the, the, the sadder question is what has become of Everest today. I mean, the commercialization of the mountain has, has become almost a caricature, and not simply because of people buying their way up, but um, it brings us around to the Tibetan message. You know, Zatro Rinpoche famously he didn't even break his meditation in 1921 to see the British. And in 22, when he did, he said simply in his Namtar, it is so uh, uh, unfortunate that men will suffer so much for such a pointless aim. And this strikes to the, the core of the issue is that for, 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 from the British point of view, the hero is the one who gets to the top of Everest. For the Tibetan point of view, the hero is a bodhisattva, you know, the, the, the individual who achieves enlightenment and escape from samsara, but elects to stay in this world to facilitate the transformation of the lives and destinies of others. And so from the Tibetan point of view, 
uh, to climb into a zone of oxygen deprivation so severe that it obliterates consciousness and and threatens death and the uh, and the and the um, um, and with death the um, elimination of this extraordinary opportunity to achieve transformation um, is, is that's a fool's errand you know I, I once was with a Lama in Tibet in a very different uh, circumstance um, and uh, he said something really wonderful to me he said you know we in Tibet don't believe that you went to the moon but you did you may not believe that we achieve enlightenment in one lifetime but we do that's a fantastic note on which to end. Wade Davis, you are just the most remarkable storyteller. And for anyone who hasn't read this book, uh, just listening to you will make them want to go and um, get in, get immersed in, in this extraordinary book that you've written. Thank you so much for today, for your storytelling uh, here on the podcast, but also thank you so much for your book. Thank you very much. We'd also like to thank the Blavatnik Family Foundation for its generous support of this podcast. To find out more about the Bailey Gifford Prize, you can visit our website or follow us on Twitter at BG Prize. And if this episode has piqued your interest, how could it have not? In the history of the prize, then you can find a 30-minute documentary on our website. Now, the Winner of Winners Award is going to be announced on the 27th of April at an event held at the National Museum of Scotland in Edinburgh. In the meantime, do join me again to hear me talk to the other shortlisted authors about the impact of winning the Bailey Gifford Prize has had on their lives, a lot more about what they've written about that made them win, and uh, and so much more. Until then, thanks very much for being with us today. Bye-bye. Read Smart, the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction podcast. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation.